morning, everybody. I'm Scott. I'm going to read from God's Word from us. This morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but the, that he had to... He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. We are uh, glad that you're here this morning, glad that you're here to worship. It's good to be uh, in the house of the Lord. It's good to be with brothers and sisters singing about our Savior, singing about the salvation we've received, the grace that's been given to us, the love with which we've been pursued. It's good to hear you sing, uh, and so I'm glad that we can be here together this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you've been with us, we've been working our way uh, through the book of Ephesians. Um, Last week, we looked specifically at verses 1 through 6. And so if you were here, what we discussed is the idea that those verses are really the linchpin for this whole book. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians were were devoted to informing you who you are in Jesus Christ. What is the identity that you've been given in your Savior? The the way that God pursued you and loved you and chose you before time, that he poured out his grace and his mercy on your life, that he called you to himself, that he did all of that before the world was even formed, before anything even existed. God looked into time and set his love and his affections on you. And in the song that we just sang together a few moments ago, one of the things that we talked about was that idea uh, that his love was set intensely upon you. I mean, think about that, that his love was so intense and so passionate in his pursuit of you that before time, he chose you. And so what we talked about in those first three chapters is this is who you are in Christ. It's a description of what it is to be a Christian. And in the last half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, what we're talking about is how then do we live as Christians in light of the new identity that we've been given. So this is not, this is not two distinct pieces, the first talking about who you are, the second talking about what you do, but these two things are connected. And last week we talked about the connection that they find in verses 1 through 6. And we talked specifically about this idea of grace-driven effort. That the gentleness and the patience and the sacrificial love that we are called to as the body of Christ is really the dependent response of the Christian to the divine grace of God. Grace-driven effort. 
not something we're mustering up, not something we're creating in and of ourselves. This isn't some sort of white knuckling through life. This isn't working yourself up into some sort of emotional state so that you can do the right thing. This isn't even discipline, though all of those things have their place in the Christian life, emotion and discipline and all of those things. But what he's talking about here is, do you understand the depth of God's love and his grace so deeply, so intensely that it begins to reform who you are? And do you begin to live now out of that new life? And so then we talk briefly in verses four through six, which I'm going to read for you. And here's what it said. It said, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And Paul here is stressing the importance of unity within the context of the body of Christ. In eight different times, he uses this word, one. Out of various peoples with various experiences and different backgrounds and different belief systems, God has formed one new people for himself. And here's what's amazing and impactful about it that we need to understand before we look at the verses that we read this morning. And that truth is that in all essential factors, we are the same. That in our need for a savior, we were the same. In the way that we were saved, if you're here in a Christian, we are the same. See, we love to hear as people. We naturally love to hear stories about people who've experienced radical transformations because of the gospel. We love to hear about lives that were once perverse and dark and wicked, and we love to see the change and the transformation that comes into those lives as the gospel begins to take root. And listen, that is a good and right story to hear, and there's a reason why we ought to hear those kinds of stories Because it does a couple of things. First of all, it reinforces the idea that God does not have a type that he's going after. He is not just going after people who are inclined towards religion or inclined towards spirituality. He is not going after people who are inclined to be dependent on some sort of a philosophical system or belief system. But he is going after people from all walks of life and all backgrounds and all experiences, again, to make out of many one, one people. But the other reason it's essential to hear is because there are those people who just assume that they are too far from the grace of God to receive it. Where they look at their lives and they say, there is no way that God would come after someone like me. There's no way God would love someone like me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what my experiences have been. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what I've done to other people. And so part of the reason that we love to hear those stories is because it reminds us that God is not impressed by who we are one way or the other. His hand is not shortened that some cannot be saved. Nor are those who do not need, nor, are the, nor, nor does that person exist who doesn't need Jesus because their life is so together. But there is a problem that comes when we overemphasize those kinds of miraculous stories. And the problem that comes is we begin to romanticize them. Here's what I mean. I remember as if it was yesterday, being a kid, sitting in my father's church. And I remember we had a guest speaker who got up and he began to talk about his life. And he started to talk about the fact that at a young age he'd begin to play around with drugs and pretty soon he found himself to be an addict. He ended up getting involved in a gang lifestyle and getting involved in all kinds of violence and sexual promiscuity. And so he's going through these litany of things in his life and you are sitting there with your jaw open that you can't believe somebody walked through all of this 
and live to tell about it, much less that this man is now standing as a Christian proclaiming God's goodness and grace on his life in front of the congregation. And so I remember walking away really inspired in the true sense of the word, really amazed by that. And I remember saying to my mom as we were leaving, I remember saying, man, that was so cool. I wish I had a story like that. And as any parent in this room might say, my mom looked at me and in a very wise way, she said, you can just be thankful that you have a boring testimony. Now, obviously, part of the reason my mom said that is because she was thankful that I hadn't been caught up in a lifestyle like that. But the other thing that she pointed out was, do you understand that for Christ to save you is just as miraculous as what he did for that man? Do you understand that your salvation truly is miraculous? On the deepest level, it is something It is something for which God himself had to enter into your life and begin to transform and change you. And so whether you are saved out of a violent, raucous lifestyle or out of self-righteousness and arrogance, born of your own good deeds, your salvation is miraculous. And either way, Christ had to bring to life what was dead. See, that's what's so incredible about the gospel. And that's what leads Paul in verse 15 to say that Christ is the head of the body of which we are a part, that our life is directly connected to him, that our life flows from him, that we're connected into him in salvation. And so now, with all of that being said, with the idea that whether you come from a difficult background and terrible experiences, or whether you come from a religious background and self-righteous experiences, you have a need for a Savior, and in Christ you find that Savior who has drawn together these people, and we've been drawn together in one Lord, in one faith, in one baptism, in one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And from that unity, Paul now moves from the one to each one. Look what he says in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. See, he begins to talk about the diversity within the body. When we hear that word diversity, immediately there's all kinds of things that begin to run through our minds. There's all kinds of presumptions we begin to make about the text. But what I would point out to you is that in this particular instance, Paul is not talking explicitly about racial diversity or socioeconomic diversity or even cultural diversity, but he is talking about a diversity that is a product of the unique ways in which God has gifted each one. I mean, he goes so far as to say that the diversity of the body, the diversity of gifts within the body are rooted in the sovereign purposes of God. That Jesus, out of his own pleasure, has gifted you specifically. That God is not creating some sort of group of indistinguishable clones, but he is creating unique individuals who are gifted for the building up of the body. And look how he bears that out in verse 8. Therefore, it says, and then he quotes, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this, these verses here in verses 8 through 10 are rather obscure. They seem out of place within the context of Ephesians. But this is a quote from Psalm chapter 68. And in that passage, uh, the author of that psalm is describing a general who is victorious in battle. This man has led an army into battle. He comes back victorious and following behind him are all the spoils of war. 
All the wealth that he had taken, everything that he had won from this battle, everything that had come from this victory, he was bringing with him and he was distributing it freely. And that's what the quote that we get in verses 9 through 10. What he's saying is there are gifts that are distributed freely. And if you notice specifically, he cites the ascension. And here's ultimately what he's saying. He's saying when Jesus Christ rose again and defeated death and hell and the grave, he not only won the victory over death, but he brought with him gifts for his people. And so in quoting Psalm 68, what he's saying is this is what happened at Jesus' ascension. When Jesus ascended and took his place at the right hand of the throne of God, he then gave freely gifts to his rescued people, both for his glory and for their joy. Do you understand if you're in this room and if you're a Christian that you have a gift? You may or may not be cognizant of what that is and you may be trying to figure out that out and we'll, we'll have conversations about those things in the future. But do you understand that if you know Jesus Christ, he has gifted you in some unique way, either, either taking your personality and who you are and your interests and elevating them and using some sort of, using some sort of spiritual influence to transform them or giving you a new gift entirely. He has gifted you for the benefit of the body and the glory of God. And whatever gifts you have were given to you as a testament to the goodness of the giver. I mean, in other words, you were not gifted so that people could look at you and admire how amazing your gift is. But you were gifted so that in seeing that gift function within the context of the body of the church, people would stand in amazement at what God is able to do. And so Paul here lists uh, a few of these gifts. This is certainly not exhaustive and we certainly don't have time to go into all of those this morning. But if you're interested in seeing the other lists, there's five lists total. They're given in three different places. And I'll just give you those chapters so that you can look at them on your own time. You can find those in Romans chapter 12. There's two different spots in Romans chapter 12. You can find them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you can find them in 1 Peter chapter 4. So again, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter chapter 4. And the last list we find in this passage here, and I want you to notice the commonality that all of these things have together. Beginning in verse 11, here's what he says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And here's what's notable about all of these gifts. They're connected to specific people. Do you notice that all of these gifts that he's given are specifically connected to a particular office within the context of the church? Now, we could, we could get lost in that and we could begin to teach on each of those things. And that wouldn't be wrong, but it would also be missing the point, I think, uh, of what we're trying to work through in this morning. Because we could, be, we could spend a lot of time defining and describing those different roles and the, the gifts that God has given. But the purpose that God is actually trying to point out here is that all of these gifts are specifically given to minister the gospel to people. So just look through that list. First, it starts with saying apostles. This is probably a reference to those that were personally chosen by Jesus Christ, those who were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. My argument for that, again, I'm not going to get into it, but the argument for that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. But what we're told earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, is that the apostles and the prophets were given to lay the foundation for what it is we believe. 
In other words, the apostles were given because they were the ones who, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They were able to say with confidence, this is who Jesus is and this is what he did. And here's what I witnessed firsthand, that all of our faith is built on those accounts. And secondly, we're told about prophets. There's a lot of ways that you could define prophets. You could define them in the Old Testament sense, where this is somebody who is speaking on behalf of God, where they are literally saying, thus saith the Lord. I don't think that's the context of this particular verse. I think what he's talking about here uh, are, are people who were preachers. These are people who explained and applied the text to the life of the hearers. They were people who declared the good news of the gospel using the word of God. The third office he gives is that of evangelist. Now again, depending on your background and experience, you may have all kinds of associations about what an evangelist is or what an evangelist does, but in the context of this verse, here's what he means. He's talking about somebody who has the gift of evangelism. Have you ever met somebody who, it doesn't seem like it matters who they're talking to or what the topic of conversation is, somehow they are always able to lead the conversation to Jesus Christ and they're always able to share the gospel with somebody? Like my mother-in-law is a person like this. It doesn't matter where she is or who she's speaking to. It doesn't matter what the crowd is around her. She is going to have a conversation with you about the gospel and whether or not you know Jesus. It's just a gift she has. It's just part of who she is. It's the way that she's wired. And so you think about this on a grand scale. You might think of somebody like Billy Graham. Someone who is uniquely gifted to explain the gospel to people who do not know Christ and may have no experience with the Bible at all. And finally, he lists the last two, shepherds and teachers. And I think what he's referencing here are pastors. These are those who care for the church local, who may live and give their entire lives with one particular congregation or living in one particular region, but they're caring for people and they're loving for people and they're preaching and teaching. They're doing the basic work of the ministry within that church context, within that role. And what we're told is that all of these things were given to the church for what reason? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now here's what I want you to notice about that. What that means is that pastors are not to be hired guns who do the work of the ministry for the congregation. That is not the role of a pastor, and unfortunately, particularly within a Western context, that is what many people's assumption of the church is. I go to church, and I observe the guy up front doing the work of the ministry, and I sit here and receive it. That is not the role of the pastor. The role of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to give you the tools, to teach you how to study, to explain what it is we believe, to share information, to, to push into action. That is the responsibility of the pastor. It's to equip you, the saints, to do the work that God has given you. And so here's what that means. What that means is that we are first, all of us, first and foremost, members of the body. And within this context, what that means is that if you're here and you're part of this body, that you are a member first of the body of Disciples Church. That my role within that, as a member of this body, is that of a pastor or a preacher. So I'm a member first, and my role as a pastor is second. Do you see how important that is? Because what that means is you don't have professionals standing above everybody else, informing everybody else what to do, but what you have is brothers and sisters walking alongside one another in the context of ministry as fellow members of the body, some with gifts that are public, where you're standing up front or you're proclaiming or you're leading or you're teaching or you're singing or you're doing those things. 
and some whose giftedness may play out in other ways that are more private or more quiet. But understand what this means. What it means is that your giftedness is necessary for the congregation. It is imperative that you use the gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ. So part of our heart at Disciples Church is that we would equip you well for the work that God has for you. So to use one small example, one of the reasons why we do the liturgy that we do is to serve as a reminder of what it is we believe. When we have public prayers or public confessions or when we, when we read catechisms together or statements of faith together or creeds together, what we are doing is declaring what it is that we collectively believe as Christians. And so when you join in those creeds or when you join in those prayers, what you are doing is taking part in some of what that work of the ministry is. Now that work of the ministry extends far beyond these walls, but within the context of the Sunday morning, that is a part of the work of the ministry to which you have been called. When we sing together, you are entering into ministry. It's ministering to hearts, it's worshiping God, it's something that we do collectively, something that we do together. And what is the ultimate end of all of these things? According to verse 13, it says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So think about this. What we're told in these verses is that in one Lord, one Savior, one God the Father, one Spirit. In other words, through the work of the whole Trinity together, all the power of the Trinity has been poured into you to make you a new person. And the language that the Bible is going to use about that is it's going to say that we've been born again. All the work, all the power of the Trinity makes you a spiritual baby. You're not immediately born as a spiritual adult with all the knowledge that goes into being a Christian, with all of the maturity that goes into being a Christian. You are first made a baby. And understand that that is inherently a good thing. You know, babies have all kinds of capacity that we don't have. They have capacity to grow at unbelievable rates. They have, they have the ability to take in and retain information from a very early age and it builds exponentially over those early years of their life. So understand that there is a good, there is a good sense in which we're babies spiritually. This is what Peter talks about in his book in, in chapter two where he says that we are infants longing for milk. Why? So that we can grow in our salvation. But the problem arises when we stay infants. Right, so it's not strange to see a baby being spoon-fed by your parent, but you'd look twice if you were out at a restaurant and you had an otherwise able-bodied, capable, grown college student being spoon-fed by his mom. Like, that's going to draw your attention and draw your eyes. Why? Because something is off there. Something is not, not quite right. And so Paul, in this passage, is going to contrast spiritual infancy with spiritual maturity. And I think this comparison is fascinating. Look what it says, beginning in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." 
Now notice first what Paul marks as a spiritual infant. He says first that you were tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. He's saying if you're a spiritual baby, here's one of the ways that you can tell you have no discernment. Like you think about this analogy, and I'm going to try not to stretch this analogy too far, although I'm tempted to, but you think about the analogy of a baby and, and, and their level of understanding at an early age. I mean, part of the reason that you don't leave Legos on the floor when you've got an eight-month-old is because an eight-month-old can't tell the difference between food and Legos. Like if it's small enough to go in my mouth, it is food. And if it's too big to go in my mouth, maybe it's something that can give me food, right? That's the whole life cycle of a baby is thinking about what they can eat and there is zero discernment as to what things they ought to eat and what not to eat. And in the very same sense, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, if you are a spiritual infant, you are tossed about with every wind of doctrine. There is no discernment as to what is truth and what is falsehood. When you think about it in a practical sense, if you've ever seen a little baby, they go through this weird phase, and I can't remember how old they are when they go through it, but they go through this phase where all of a sudden, for the first time, they discover their hand, and they're just looking at their hand, and they don't really seem to figure out that it's connected to their body because they're moving it around, and they're looking at it as if it's completely disconnected from who they are. Right? They're distracted by lights, and they're looking at ceiling fans, and they're doing all of those different things. And likewise, spiritual infants are obsessed with the latest religious trends, but they don't even know who they are in Christ. They're looking at themselves and they don't even recognize what Christ has formed them to be. So let me put this in an illustration. I mean, do you remember the story when the disciples were sent out by Christ and they went into another village and they cast out demons in that village and they come running back to Jesus in all of this excitement and they say, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. We went to a bunch of demons and told them to get out of these people and you know what they did? They listened. We even have power over spirits and they're all excited and they're amped up and they're sharing this story and do you remember Jesus' response to them? He says, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now that seems like an odd response. But here's ultimately what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you need to grow up. You need to realize, you need to realize that there is something infinitely greater than some spirit listening to your command, and that is that your name is written in the book of life. You need to understand who you are. You should get unending joy out of what Christ has already done for you. And so here's practically what that means. Here's how you can tell at least one indicator of where you are in your spiritual journey. If you hear a good sermon or you read a good book or you have a challenging conversation with somebody and you feel that conviction to change but you do not act on it, you're like a baby that's moving from one thing that draws its attention to something else. Eugene Peterson defined it this way, and he actually used this definition of discipleship that I love, but he says that ultimately the Christian journey and discipleship in Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. That there is a consistency to your faith, a long obedience in the same direction, that you are moving towards something consistently in your spiritual life, and understand that there are all sorts of things that keep us from growing as Christians. There's all kinds of besetting sins, and there's all kinds of things that draw our attention away from God, but what Paul is specifically referencing here is that growth in the word leads to maturity. Maturity. 
So let me apply this in a very practical sense because this speaks well of the time and age in which we live. We're blessed in that we have, uh, we have the ability now because of the internet and because of podcasts and because of videos online and because of all these things that we have access to infinite numbers of amazing sermons and amazing teachers and amazing preachers. And I'm incredibly thankful that we have that. There's all sorts of preachers and teachers that have influenced me and changed my mind on things and helped me grow through things. But let me tell you the dangerous side of that. The dangerous side is when you begin to listen to other people so much so that you are unable to feed yourself. Where your Christian life ceases to be learning from other people for the sake of applying it to your own walk and therefore learning from the gospel better, but instead where you begin to live vicariously through the spiritual understanding of other people. Where you move from one one inspirational sermon to another. One inspirational book to another. One challenging conversation to another. But none of it is taking root in your heart. And to do that as as short-sighted as a child staying permanently dependent on their parent for feeding. It creates a people who don't know what they believe. It creates a people who are easily drawn away and susceptible to false teaching that doesn't align with the Bible. I mean, you think about Paul's own words of admonition about the Bereans, where he said, here's what I love about the Bereans, that they search out the scriptures as I'm preaching to determine if the things that I'm saying are true. And Paul didn't take that as some sort of threat or challenge. He said, that's what I love about these people, that they will not take what I say at face value, but they're going to search out the Bible to determine if what I said is true. That is a mark of maturity. And so Paul then begins to describe the mature believer in verse 15, and he says, they speak the truth in love. The opposite of that for someone who's a spiritual infant is that they don't speak the truth in love, right? That's fairly obvious because they are utterly self-centered. Notice that there are two hurdles for someone who's maturing in Jesus Christ when it comes to this conversation. And those two hurdles are truth and love and they are interdependent. They are tied together. They are joined at the hip. And what he's saying is, is you have to have truth and love together in order to be mature. Because the temptation of people is to gravitate towards one or the other. Either you're somebody who values truth above all else and you could care less what anybody thinks or how you approach people or how you talk to people about truth. Or you care about love above everything else and you never want to offend and you never want to risk and you never want to chance hurting. And so you avoid the truth at all costs. And here's where the call of Paul is. He's saying you need to understand that these two things are inherently tied together. That we ought to be a people who are so inundated with the truth, so awash in the truth that we cannot help but share the truth with others. And yet we're so aware of God's love for us that we do it in a gentle and loving way. What that leads us to do then is to be able to interact with somebody and care for them spiritually without judging their spiritual journey. Here's what I mean by that. If at the moment of salvation we become spiritual infants, then it shouldn't surprise us when people in the church act like infants. And the temptation that we have is to sit back and criticize and call out and challenge, why is it that these people even think this way? They should know better. And perhaps they should know better. 
But the call of Scripture, at least according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and Titus chapter 2, is that the call of the mature believer in that moment is to come alongside that infant. In fact, Paul uses amazing language. He says, you have many, many teachers, but you do not have many fathers. What would it look like within the context of a congregation like this to have people who are spiritually infants, newborn Christians, brand new Christians, walking alongside people who have known the Lord for years and years? People who are not coming along merely as teachers, though that's inherently a good thing, and not coming along as people who are critics, but people who are coming along as parents. I can tell you for Jessica and I, there have been a handful of people over the years who have functioned in that role for us, and it's been invaluable. To be able to learn from somebody else's marriage, to be able to learn from somebody else's parenting, to be able to learn from someone else's spiritual walk what it is to be a mature believer and to have someone care about you and love you enough to invest in you despite your foolishness. But a spiritual baby is more concerned about reputation and ego and happiness and convenience than they are about lovingly speaking the truth. And when you do that, you're actually proving that you're not a spiritually mature person, but a spiritually immature one because you are not living out of who you are. You are not living out of the acceptance you've been given. See, God's expectation for you and for all of us is that we would grow into mature spiritual adulthood. And what that means is that we're capable not only of feeding ourselves, but also of feeding others. So in order to do that, we need to be growing in the Word so that we can interact with friends and neighbors and loved ones and co-workers who do not know Christ so that we can speak truth in love to them. So that you can do what 1 Peter 3.15 says, which is to give an answer to anyone who would ask about the hope that is within you. Are you able on some level, even if it's with a lack of eloquence, are you able to express why the gospel matters to you? He continues this thought in verses 15 and 16, but what he's going to say here is, you've been given the church to make you aware of where you stand. And he uses preaching and teaching, of course, to reveal areas of our life where there's weakness or where there's immaturity, but he also uses relationships. And what's fascinating about this passage is it will not allow us to pretend that our spiritual journey is one that we move forward on by ourselves. The church is given to us to be a mirror of sorts. See, when you are little and you are immature and you're growing, there are things about yourself that you don't see. So my four-year-old has been doing this thing recently where he loves to get himself completely ready in the morning, and we love it, despite some of the clothing choices that he occasionally makes. We love the idea that he can get himself up, that he picks out his own clothes, he'll go in the bathroom, he'll brush his teeth, and he'll comb his own hair, and then he will come to you and present himself and say, how do I look? And here's what I love about the age that he's at, is he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's combing his hair, and he looks great if you look at him straight on. But if you slightly turn him, what you realize is there's a whole patch of hair back here that he missed. Why? because he couldn't see it. His vision was obscured. The things that he knew about himself, of course he had cleaned up and polished to the best of his ability, but there was a whole side of him that he couldn't see. And what he needed was mom and dad who were going to come over and help him and show him those things. 
See, in a very similar way, God uses the church to reveal things about us. He uses other people to show us those parts of our, of our life that have gone unpolished, untouched by the gospel, unmoved by the person of who Jesus Christ is. And so another point of maturity for the Christian ought to be, who in your life has the freedom and the ability to call you out on the areas where you're weak? Is there even anyone that you could go to and say, hey, now be honest with me. Where do you see that I'm weak in my life? Where do you see that I'm growing? Where do you see that I'm strong? Is there anybody that knows you to that extent? Because what Paul is going to say is that you will not be able to grow in maturity without deep community and relationships. So he continues in verse 16. He says, Grow up in Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, here's the expectation of Scripture. The expectation is that every Christian will be a part of a local body. And that every Christian will actively be contributing to the building up of the other saints within that body. See, for many people, again, their expectations of the church is that the work of ministry belongs to the pastors. So when you're sick or when you're in need, if the pastor doesn't visit you, nobody's visited you. If the pastor hasn't prayed for you, the prayers of others really don't count. But that's such a different picture than what Paul is painting here because what he's saying is he's describing a body that is so unified around the gospel, so mature in its faith, so looking, for, looking out for and caring for one another that when someone is in trouble, the body knows and responds and cares and is there. He's describing a church where every member understands that they've been gifted and placed See, the truth is that we as a congregation need you to be ministering. We need you to do the work of the ministry because you have gifts and abilities that I don't have. And you have gifts and abilities that Dave doesn't have. And you have gifts and abilities that the other people in your row do not have. You have things about you that are unique and special and gifted and not in some sort of superficial you're a snowflake kind of sense, but in the sense that God himself, out of his sovereignty and out of his love before time, determined that he was going to give you a gift to be used for his glory and for your joy. Think about that. Think about what a massive thing it is to lose when someone within the context of the body says, no, I'm going to hold that back. To bear out the illustration, it'd be like losing your hand or a foot. We can't afford to lose that. See, we've got people from all walks of life, and we've got doctors and nurses and engineers and computer science professionals. We've got teachers and salesmen and and designers. We've got dads and moms and managers. We've got tradesmen and professionals and retirees who have opportunities that someone like me will never have. Because you're going to rub shoulders with people who may never darken the door of a church. You have personalities and insights and gifts into the lives of others within this church and outside of it that I will never have. And when each valuable part of the body is doing the work that he or she is called and gifted to do, the whole body benefits. See, you as a Christian have insight that the world 
desperately needs. And they don't always need winsome words or dazzling intellect. What they need to hear is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully proclaimed by people who are living and loving out of the relationship that they have with a risen Savior. So how is all of this made possible? It's made possible by truth and love. See, when Jesus Christ came to earth and began to, began to declare and proclaim the sinfulness of mankind, he was speaking a deep and heavy truth. It was a truth that was inherently offensive and insulting because what he was saying is, is you are so wicked and so broken and so screwed up that you needed the God of the universe to step in to fix things. What he was declaring is that you are so unable in and of yourselves to obey and to do right and to live good lives that you needed a substitute to do it for you. It was the most insulting message that could have ever been proclaimed. But it was truth. Unfortunately, it was deeply connected to love. Because Christ not only declared about us what was true, but he said, I'm gonna, I love you so much that I'm willing to give myself for you. That the same God who recognized our need loved us so much that he came to fill it. And so the call for us as a body is to emulate and live out of the truth and the love that Christ gave for us. That in that same sense of conviction and confidence in the faithfulness of scripture and in the truth that we believe and proclaim, we are also showing and demonstrating and living out and caring for and loving others. That's the only reason that a body can be unified. And it's not only what this church desperately needs, it's what this world desperately needs. It's the reason why Jesus Christ in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the high priestly prayer went out of his way to say, Father, would you make them one even as we are one? That there is to be such a depth of unity around the person of Jesus Christ and such a depth of unity around the gifts that we've been given to serve and care for and love one another that it brings to mind the community of the Trinity itself. And that is only made possible through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ? Would we be faithfully considering the way that God's gifted us so that we can faithfully execute the things that he's called us to do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a text this morning that is not straightforward or necessarily easy, but God, one that is so desperately needed. God, I pray that you would make of people who are in very different places in our spiritual journey, would you make us into mature believers? Would you bring us into the fullness of Christ? God, we realize that Paul who wrote this was the first to declare that he had not attained full maturity. And so God, would you give us both confidence and strength to continue to pursue you and grow in you, to faithfully use the gifts that you've given us in service of one another. And God, would you help us as a church to enable the saints, to empower the saints to do the work of the ministry. 
Would you help us to faithfully teach and faithfully call and faithfully walk with those that are part of this community so that much can be made of who you are. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.